from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome to The Set, a podcast that explores the motivations, experiences, and secrets to success from interesting people in and out of the field of surgery. With some humor mixed in, I'm your host, Sir Josh Mesrich, a transplant surgeon, part-time comedian, and somewhat successful fashion model in Madison, Wisconsin, home of the Badgers. The celebrity I most look like is Brad Pitt, although lately some people are saying I look more like Matthew McConaughey since I have been growing my hair out during COVID. All right, all right, all right, all right. The most common reaction I get when people find out I'm married to Gretchen Schwarzy is, what? Or really, it's, what the f? I mean, of course I find that offensive. I know I'm so beloved. I know people just look at me and think I'm so amazing. But they shouldn't underestimate Gretchen that way. Okay, I'm kidding. I know they say it because they can't understand how someone as amazing as the great Dr. Schwarzy could fall for someone like me. I have often wondered the same thing myself. We met when we were both working in Joran Madsen's lab at the Transplantation Biology Research Center at MGH. That's Marquette General Hospital. It's really not. But I do love saying that. I mean, we live in Wisconsin, and Marquette General Hospital, I think, technically is in Michigan. But if you look at the map, it's obvious it should be Wisconsin. Anyways, as I remember it, I swept her off her feet by performing my mouse heart transplants next to her desk which I thought made me look really cool. What was probably less cool was that I would always forget the donors on her desk after I finished, and they didn't smell that great after a little time passed. I somehow convinced Gretchen to come back with me to the University of Chicago, where she conducted her vascular fellowship under the tutelage of Bruce Gewertz, Harrison Ford, and the rest of the department. She then stayed on and and became one of my attendings. Can you imagine that? While I'm a very humble person, I would say that one piece of advice I might give to young people around the world is, it may be a good idea to not work for your spouse. There were definitely some advantages, but there were also some challenges. I do remember this one time. She was attending and I was the fourth year resident. I was scrubbed with the fellow on a case. It was actually an arterial dissection in the groin after a cardiac catheterization. We were in the cardiac room, so we really didn't know the nurses very well. Well, the way I remember it, I was scrubbed in with the fellow and she was standing behind watching. She really didn't like what I was doing, and I really didn't like that she didn't like what I was doing, so I kept trying to block her view with my back. I remember she kept saying, no, stop what you're doing. And I kept saying, no, I think it's okay. The fellow, he kept whispering to me, you're doing fine. You're doing fine. It was pretty awkward. Somehow we got through the case. A couple of weeks later, I was scrubbed with those same nurses and scrub techs. And they said to me, that new vascular attending really doesn't like you. I said, which one? They said, you know, the new female vascular attending. I said, that's my wife. And they were like, oh, that makes more sense. Don't worry, we don't scrub together much anymore. Well, we've been at the University of Wisconsin for the last 16 years, and in that time, I can honestly say I owe almost all of my successes to Gretchen. She is so dedicated to making healthcare better. She pushes herself to be the best that she can be every day, whether in clinical care or her research efforts. She really wants to make healthcare better. The way this has affected me is that at my own baseline, I would probably just lie on the couch and watch old episodes of Below Deck or The Kardashians 
and wondering what it would be like if I was in the cast. But when I see Gretch working so hard to change healthcare, I figure I should probably do something too. Gretchen really is my moral compass. But one thing, I don't totally know what it is she does in her research career. I mean, I know she is famous for her work on best case, worst case, but I can't say I really know what that is. I have tried to use this communication tool with my own patients, but it hasn't really worked that well for me. Like I say, okay, so best case, the surgery goes really well and you accept the organ and you live a great, long, happy life. Worst case is it goes really badly and you die a horrible death. Which one do you want? I'm not quite sure that's how it was designed, but I haven't found it that useful. I've even tried singing it. It still doesn't work. Maybe we can use this opportunity to find out what it is she really does. So why don't we start by talking about where you're from, where you grew up, and what were the events that got you excited about going into the field of medicine? I love that you start with this softball question because it seems like something I can actually answer. I grew up in suburban Philadelphia. It was a very suburban life. But my grandparents lived close by and my grandfather was the chair of surgery at the Medical College of Pennsylvania. And he was pretty much the coolest person ever. And all I really wanted to be was my grandfather. He was an amazing surgeon, but also somebody who was funny and laughed a lot. He loved surgery as much as he loved my grandmother, which was actually quite a bit. And um, I just wanted to be like him. When I was about 13 or so, he had me go into the operating room. And I didn't actually watch him. I watched a woman named Kathy Hayward, who was doing a cholecystectomy, which when I was 13 was an open cholecystectomy. And I stood in the back of the room on four stands and I was hooked. I was hooked from then on. That's all I really wanted to ever be. So he worked with a lot of women back then, didn't he? Yeah. The Medical College of Pennsylvania was originally called Women's Medical College. And there were actually several people not a lot of women in surgery at that point, but certainly many women physicians in the medical college. And uh, he felt that it was important for me to see a woman operating. I think he thought it was uh, important to inspire me in a way that I could imagine myself that way. Although I have to tell you, as I got older, he would say things like, surgery is the greatest job in the world, but not for a girl. And I think that just reflected the times he grew up in and his concerns about the challenges of raising a family and being a surgeon. So he, you don't think he was implying something about skill, but it was more about lifestyle? I think he struggled to imagine how women could manage both a career in surgery and raising a family, the way he had seen other women raise a family and the way he imagined what men did as surgeons. I know when you were growing up, you were a competitive figure skater. Uh, were you uh, pretty obsessed with that growing up or what role did that play? Yeah, I spent a lot of time at the skating rink. I wasn't particularly good. They, you know, they have all these levels and you pass these tests and you compete at different levels. I like to jump a lot and jump, fly into the air and spin around. I wasn't so great at landing in part because I was really aggressive with the jumps and didn't care quite so much about my body as I probably should have. I had a few bad accidents where I fell on my head and split open the side of my face and had to go to the emergency room. I think I was just much less concerned about landing than I was about getting into the air. <laughs> I've always had this theory that like the individual sports, they create such an intensity and uh, there's good and bad to that. Uh, but maybe some of those skills helped you as you went through your training in surgery. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I love surgery in part because it's such a team sport and I think I would have done better certainly as a high school student, but maybe even develop 
better teamwork type skills earlier had I been on a team sport. I can remember in college, I actually played ice hockey in college, mostly because I could skate well. And I went to a really fantastic division three school that was pretty equal opportunity. So they let me on the ice and let they let me play on the team, even though I was a really bad hockey player. I was on what we call the eight point rule, which meant if we were up or down by eight points, I got to play. But I can remember my sophomore year, there was a woman who was on the soccer team who also joined the hockey team, having never played hockey before. And she could not skate for her life, but she was always in the right place. And she knew how to score. And I think that she just had a sense of teamwork and game skills that I didn't develop as a figure skater. And so I would skate hard and I would skate fast, but I didn't understand what it meant to sort of collaborate and understand where the puck was going. I just felt like maybe if I worked harder, I could get there. That fits like my philosophy about surgery is that if I work hard enough, I could get good at it. But it's interesting to talk about it as a team sport, because in a way it is a team sport, but as the surgeon, you're kind of captain of the team, I guess. Yeah, I definitely like being the captain. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> I, I can attest to that. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I like being the captain, but I think it's actually the collaboration that makes it work. And I think that when you grow up as a really high achiever and you're working so hard to sort of make these goals, if you don't learn those collaborative skills, it actually is a handicap at some point and you have to find a way to to learn them. And I think, you know, that's what I learned during residency, that it was a team sport. And I loved the team that I was on. I, I loved being part of that. And I felt like, you know, I liked medicine as a uh, medical student. I thought a lot about being a nephrologist or a pulmonologist, but I liked the team on surgery more. And it was really, it was really sort of what helped me make that decision at the very end between internal medicine and surgery. And I still like the team of surgery. I want to get back to that. Let me back up for a second. So when you went to college, and I know you went to Colby, and by the way, I always do a lot of research for these, but I didn't have to do much in this case. Um, But anyways, when you went to college, you were thinking med school, surgery, because of your grandfather. Is that right? Yeah, I went to college definitely thinking I was pre-med and I would go to medical school. I also went to this amazing liberal arts college in the middle of Maine. And the second I got there, I realized there were so many other things I could study besides biology. You know, everybody shows up like, I'm pre-med, I'm going to be a biology major. And I said, oh, wait, there's this class called the Female Experience in America and this class in American Studies and Philosophy. And I could not imagine not taking advantage of those things in college. And so I actually majored in philosophy and math. And took the bare minimum of pre-medical requirements because I felt like I would get plenty of science in med school, but I would never have the opportunity to study those things again, like I did in college. And man, those four years were really special. I, I, you know, I miss it. I love every minute of it. And I have this fantasy that when I retire, I'll just go back to college and get a degree in American studies or world history or something really liberal arts. It's a great message. And um, for all of our listeners that are young and thinking about a career, I totally agree with it. I went to college and was a Russian major, Russian language and literature. And I also never was going to do that as a career, but figured I'd do the sciences and medical school in the future. So I do think taking advantage of those years is great. I know you really thrived in college. And one of your uh, roommates, I think years later, showed me an article that was written about you that was titled like, 
the perfect student or something like that. Um, I know you thrived in a lot of areas. Did you ever think like, huh, maybe I should become a politician or a professor or, uh, you know, you were someone who probably wanted to change the world. You still hung on to medicine. Yeah, I definitely like the idea of changing the world. And there are times since college and med school that I've thought of other jobs. Like I'd love to be an economist. When I was in college, it was really very singularly focused on going to medical school. But I would say the backup plan was to be a math professor or a firefighter. There are pieces of me that still think something in math or econ would have been really pretty awesome too. I I love my job. So it's hard. It's hard to look back and say, huh, maybe I didn't do the right thing. But there are definitely other things that caught my attention. Firefighter, you said? Yeah, I don't know why I wanted to be a firefighter, but I still, there's a piece of me that's still like really interested in this sort of notion of being a firefighter. I think it's that whole rescue thing that I suspect most of us as surgeons have. I can see how you were attracted to me because I'm the kind of person who could carry people out of a fire. I'm, for those that know me, I'm the exact opposite of that. So I don't think I um, realized this about you. Okay, I'm going to lock that into my mind. All right, so... And actually, if I remember correctly, right before me, you were dating a firefighter. Isn't that right? I went out with a state <laughs> trooper once and that trooper. did not work out well. No firefighters. No fire. Okay, we'll veer, let's veer away from this. Yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, I know you went to Colby for college. You loved it. You went to Harvard Medical School. You really thrived uh, through all of this. So you were talking a little bit about this and you liked a lot of other specialties besides surgery. You mentioned medicine, nephrology. Yeah. I mean, when I, by the time I finished college, I had done enough inspection of the world that I was much more into social justice issues. I really thought that I, you know, when I went to medical school, my goal was to be a primary care physician who took care of homeless people by and large. That, that was, you know, certainly what I wrote on my med school application. It was very genuine. I spent a lot of time in soup kitchens in Maine, really thinking about homelessness and poverty. And um, that was my goal was to be a primary care physician who by and large took care of the homeless population. I wouldn't say that I thrived in medical school. I would say that I struggled like many people in medical school for a lot of different reasons. I think one of the big reasons was that you get to medical school and you think, wow, I thought I was going to be able to change the world. And you realize that the world's problems are pretty big. I really had a crisis of confidence in the middle of medical school, somewhere in between that peds rotation where you do that baby flog and you stick needles all over them trying to get (laughs) fluids out of them and maybe a surgery rotation or a medicine rotation. I just felt very frustrated that most of the problems I saw were related to social problems and very few problems had any sort of solution. And so I actually took a year off and I went to the Kennedy School of Government mostly because they gave me a scholarship. I probably would have been better off going to you know, a foreign country to do some service work. But I went to the School of Government thinking that if these problems are social or political, then maybe I'm better off using a government degree to try and change the world. And I think, you know, a lot of people who are 23, 24, this is sort of what they think. They think, I want to make the world a better place. And so I went to the School of Government and then felt even more disappointed about what government could do and felt, well, maybe I should go back to med school and be a doctor. Um, But I think that's actually how I ended up in surgery. I didn't like these chronic, unfixable problems. I loved the notion of having someone coming to the hospital who was very ill from something as simple as appendicitis. And you know, back then, the only way to treat appendicitis was to operate on it. I loved being able to treat that, make them better, get them back to where they were. 
And it really felt like fixing problems. I think it's a little ironic that all of the things that excite me now as a clinician, as an academic, as a scientist are not acute problems that are easily fixable. I actually really love chronic illness. And you know what they say about vascular surgeons, all we're doing is rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And mm-hmm. I actually really love that. I love I love that about the vascular patients. Were you taken by being in the operating room? Was that part of the relationship or was it more you take these sick people and actually fix them. I love being in the operating room when I was 13 and that really hasn't changed. I I love the excitement of it. I love that people knew what to do in the operating room. I love the the focus on doing things with your hands and the creativity of it. When I was a kid, I I made a ton of things just sewing things and putting things together whether it was knitting or crafting puppets and Surgery kind of felt like that to me. It was really a way to use your hands to make someone better. And that that was an easy fit for me. And the culture of the operating room, I really, really liked. And so... Did you remind, did you think of your grandfather a lot? Or do you still when you're in there? You know, I mean, I, he was alive until my fourth year of residency. And so we talked a lot about surgery during medical school and during residency I didn't really think about him that much in the operating room, but we definitely, when we were together, could have this space of shared joy. You know, I think that space is a very happy space for a lot of surgeons. I don't think it has to be a happy space in order to be a good surgeon. I think for some surgeons, it's not a happy space. I think it's a happy space for a lot of surgeons. And I still, I still have days when you're in the middle of something and you just sort of pull your head up for two seconds and think, wow. It's freaking cool that I can do this. Mm. I really like this discussion. I I think there are different uh, reasons or different relationships with surgery. Some people love the act of it. it. They're just addicted to the act of surgery. And I and we both know people like that. Some people like the mental side of it, which is where I put myself. I like the puzzle. I like the planning and solving the puzzle. I think you can also like what it is that surgery can do. But you definitely have to gain a comfort in the operating room, right? I mean, I think people that feel uncomfortable in the operating room are going to struggle in the field. You know, it's such an interesting topic, and I think we could talk for days about it. I think everybody has a certain discomfort of the operating room. And I think for some people, that discomfort is really, really big, and they just fight it constantly. And they're still really good. But they're constantly fighting that discomfort. I think other people barely feel that discomfort and it hits them three days post-op or at nighttime um, when they're trying to sleep. I think it is hard to imagine a good surgeon who doesn't have some respect for the challenges that then put into you that discomfort. I honestly think that if surgery didn't have that discomfort, it wouldn't be particularly fun. That when I'm doing cases that are super duper easy and, you know, I love that the patients are happy. I think, you know, varicose veins is a good example of this. I love that they're happy. I actually really like having a day where I don't have to have a serious conversation about taking off someone's leg or that they could die from surgery, but it's boring. Mm -hmm. You know, after three or four veins, that is boring. And even if you're doing good, it's still boring. And so I think that the discomfort of, I don't know how this is going to end up, or this could end up badly, or I'm stuck and I'm up against a wall and I'm not sure how I'm going to get out of it. And then you get out of it. That can be very exhilarating. And I think without that, it would just be, 
be like being a dentist. And mm-hmm. I don't mean to be pejorative. I have, I have many dental I know. listeners. <laughs> I don't mean to be pejorative about dentists, but I think that that's just a job. And maybe they have their aneurysms and their, you know, bleeding and, you know, something that I just don't know about. But I think that the, the cleaning teeth part of it is probably, you know, it's just work. And when it's just work, that's not as exciting as when you really have to think your way out of it or you need a specific skill to, you know, get through it and get it done. Anytime someone mentions dentists, I think of the Seinfeld, you're an anti-dentite bastard. But uh, I may but qualify I, for that. <laughs> I know we have some dentists in the family, but I um I like your sentiment. I agree. I, I like to say, and I've said this before, um, I think surgery can be too hard to use the word fun. I think I use the word satisfying. I can't think of anything more satisfying than when you plan a, a case and it, and then you enact it and it goes the way you want and you're really happy with the outcome. That's an unbelievable feeling. But there are probably different ways to look at it. But I, I like how you describe it. You use the word exhilarating, which I think is correct too. I know that feeling. I'm always interested in I, one of my idols, Tom Starzl, who uh, who is the father of liver transplant and wrote a really interesting and beautiful book, The Puzzle People. But he's one of the biggest surgeries surgeons ever. He's he's died now, but he wrote in his book that he was always fearful before going to the operating room and he couldn't eat and he couldn't drink and um, then he would go do the surgery and. Um, he was an intense guy, and it's not clear how much of that is retrospective and true or not. But it's just interesting to hear one of these gi- giant figures in surgery kind of talk about those things. Yeah, I'm not sure everybody feels that sense of angst, um, but I think everybody carries a piece of that. And I think the people who don't carry a piece of that are probably not the people I want operating on me. I do think, um, you know, I think a lot about Tom Starzl and I think about Andre Agassi's book, Open, and he meets Steffi Graf and he says, I got to tell you, I hate tennis. And she looks at him and she says, doesn't everybody? (laughs) And I think there's a piece of surgery that is just like that, right? There is this sort of, when you think about a hard case and you look at the scan and you think about it over and over in your mind about how you're going to do it, it's not just about how you're going to do it. It's just sort of also a film strip of all the shit that can happen and all the, you know, all the ways this can go badly. And part of that sucks you in a little bit more. And part of that sort of sits in your stomach while you're doing it so that when it is done and it has been hard and you're looking at a, a nice graft that's not bleeding in the bottom of the abdomen or, you know, you have a nice palpable pulse in the foot or um, whatever it is, because it was hard, it feels that much more satisfying. And I think if it was just sort of go in there, take a piece out, put a new piece in, it wouldn't be very interesting. And I think, you know, I'm, I don't know how Agassi really feels about tennis, but I think I understand his notion of I hate tennis. Get that. I love that quote. I, of course, love his book, Open, which everyone should read. And um, it's a really fascinating look at being great at something, but also feeling the burden of that. I think there's a there's a truth to the burden of a, of being a surgeon. I think Agassi, in, on some levels, loves tennis, but on some levels, it, it's a difficult life, right, to be this prodigy. I love our career of surgery, but it's hard. It's It's difficult, and you have to find ways to balance that. Let's let's back up a little. Um, I know. So you went to Mass General. Um, you did your general surgery there. Why did you decide on vascular surgery? I know mm-hmm. you sp- you spoke a little about that rearranging the deck chairs, but I'm not sure you got that when you were a resident. My fourth year, 
uh, we had to go up to Lynn Hospital and we did a three month rotation at Lynn Hospital. And it was, you know, basic private practice, general surgery job, but it was general and vascular surgery. And I realized when I was at Lynn that the cases I was the most excited to come for work for were the vascular cases, whether it was a carotid or at that time, all the aneurysms were open. So that was pretty fun. And, you know, we do distal bypasses and I could not imagine, I thought I would be a general surgeon who did vascular. And the main reason I wanted to do a vascular fellowship was that I could not imagine life without carotid endarterectomy. I just love that case so much. The anatomy is beautiful. I loved how precise you needed to be sewing the patch on. I just, there was something about that case that I thought, if I can't do this case again, because I haven't done at the time, it was just a year of fellowship, I'm going to be really mad. I really like, I just didn't want somebody to compromise my ability to do certain cases. And so I went into vascular because I thought it would make me a broader surgeon. I thought I would be able to do more things in a general and vascular practice. And honestly, you know, you know this, but maybe the listeners don't. I, you know, we were in a basic science lab together. I know Jordan Madsen still feels really bad about this, but I, I think he listens to this. I know, so. <laughs> but Jordan, it's not your fault. You know, I didn't like it. And I didn't like it not because of Jordan and not because of you, because you were there. I didn't like <laughs> it because it just wasn't for me. Right. It was about the basic um, science, basic research. science mm. research. It was like watching grass grow and then all the grass would die and then you'd have to start all over again. And it was very monastic. It didn't seem very team oriented. And I just figured that I wasn't ever going to be good at basic science and I couldn't be an academic surgeon if I didn't do basic science. So when I went into, you know, when I applied for vascular fellowship, my plan was to be a general surgeon who did some vascular and do private practice. That was that was my strategy. And the whole reason to do vascular was just to be able to do more cases. Just to fill in the blanks. So we did meet in the lab uh, at Mass General. It was kind of a special time, I think, for us. And then you came with me back to University of Chicago to do your vascular fellowship. And um, we had Bruce Gewertz on earlier, who was, you know, the chairman at that time. So you almost went into private practice. Um, let me just ask this, because when you were in college and then coming into medical school, you thought you were going to try and work with poor patients and underprivileged and really try and help you know, communities that needed it. Where now you were just like, I, I love just doing these cases or were you still thinking you might do something like that? I mean, I just don't think I thought, you know, residency is one of those moments in life where you're doing and you're not thinking. And that doesn't mean that you're not learning and you're not growing, but there's not a lot of time for introspection about what matters or what makes your life worth living. Mostly what you're thinking about is, am I going to be good enough? Mm -hmm. Can I learn this? Can I really do it? And what seems like achievement when you're a resident is just being able to be good at the cases. And so I didn't really think beyond this notion of, I just need to be good at this. Like right. I didn't have any moment where I could have a reflection about, is this valuable to me? I find that this is really important and interesting to me because surgery is one of, there's probably a lot of fields like this, but all I can speak about is this one. You don't really know if you're going to be good at it and you know you can work really hard, but as you go along, I used to think there'd be some epiphany someday where you're like, I got it. I'm really good at this now. And because when I was an intern, I'd look at the chiefs and then the attendings and think, well, they're good at it. There isn't an epiphany, right? So uh, as a resident, you're really just 
it's overwhelming. You're just trying to see, can I, can I do this? Right. I mean, that's what the training is like. I, it's definitely what the training is like. And I would say the first few years on staff, it's like that as well, because now you have nobody who's looking over your shoulder and saying, yeah, that's good. No, that's mm-hmm. not good. Yeah. I think you just want to sort of be able to prove to yourself that you can do it. It's hard not to think that way. It, it's a lot to be good at and it's a lot of training and it's fun too. I loved being a resident. I loved, I just loved everything about residency. Not that I didn't have bad days. I definitely had bad days, but I look back on my residency time with deep fondness about, like, that's the only thing I did. He just did residency. And that's all I had to do was take care of the patients and go to the operating room. And there was something very simple about that time. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, for those in training, you rather than be fearful about, am I going to be good at this? You just have to embrace the desire to master it. And, you know, training, I believe, is really good in this country and, and you will get there. That's my feeling. So I have to give a plug um, because my dad is is one of my biggest listeners. Um, so wasn't there a night or is this just a, a Mesrich family fable? where you were thinking of going into private practice and my dad talked you out of it. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think that that's a fairly reasonable summary of what happened. I think there were, you know, there were a bunch of factors that led up to that point. The biggest of which was that I was about to finish my vascular fellowship, which at the time was just a year and you still had two years of residency to go. And so I took my resume and went to suburban Chicago to Naperville and Flossmoor and, interviewed for general and vascular jobs and they looked at me like what are you doing here like do you really want this job and I was like yeah I'm a really good surgeon and they sort of were like this is not the right job for you and I I went back to UFC and I said to Bruce like nobody Bruce Gewertz, Bruce that is Gewertz, our nobody wants me I don't I don't understand this and Bruce said you know Gretchen there's a lot of good things to do in academic surgery and you don't have to do basic science At the time, what happened is that they actually had two years of vascular fellowship available because it had switched over, but it switched over after I matched. So I wasn't obligated to do the second year. And Bruce said, just do this second year. He's like, I don't care what you do. I probably shouldn't say that, but he's like, I don't care what you do. but, (laughs) (laughs) um, But find something at the University of Chicago that is interesting to you and do that. And so I did this ethics fellowship before I decided to do this ethics fellowship. The three of us had gone out to dinner, your dad. And, and where did we go? What we was went to Phil Stefani. Phil, I, I don't know if it's still there. What? I think it's dead now. What a great. It was such a great, great restaurant. If he, if Phil, if you're out there, wonderful. <laughs> no, we miss you. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, we went to the, the restaurant and I was really on the fence. Like, should I do this private practice thing? Should I do another year of vascular surgery and do to try to do academics? And your dad, Ruben, said to me, he said, you know, Gretchen, you can always do private practice, but it's really hard to do private practice and then come back to academics. That just people don't do that. He said, just just go for it. Just do it. And he really, you know, I mean, your dad's a pretty persuasive guy. I have to say that. Yeah. For those that don't know my dad, um, he's he at the time was chairman of radiology at University of Maryland. And um, now his main job is to listen to my podcasts. But he is a persuasive guy, and um, he reminds me. He he actually is the character that book. What is it called? Shit, my dad says it's uh, that was based on. But uh, if any of you have read that that book out there, but your dad is Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like that picture of Bernie on the Capitol steps. Yeah, that, that could be pretty much it. Dad, I hope you're liking this. But yeah, um, <laughs> but you know, it was it was hard to say no to Ruben. But I do, you know, I'm super grateful to him for being so supportive and to 
really have helped me. I mean, it was just really good career advice that you couldn't, you could go one direction, but it would be hard to go the other way. And that being in academics was a special thing and that there was very little downside to trying it and try, try and find my space. The hard part is that, you know, this was, you know, very early 2000s and there were very few surgeons who had an academic career that didn't have a basic science lab. And I know that sounds very foreign 20 years later because it's so different now. But John Berkmeyer and Sam Finlayson are only just a few years older than I am. And I think John's paper on, you know, volume and outcomes was maybe just a year or two before that. And so there wasn't a lot of imagination or vision for what it would be like to be an academic surgeon that was somewhere outside of the basic sciences. So it was, it was a bit of a leap. And yet, because the University of Chicago is this very exciting intellectual place, and there was so much opportunity there. And because I had people who really encouraged me, I mean, people really believed, you know, said, just just keep exploring, you'll figure this out. You know, I feel very lucky that I was able to do that and then to keep developing over time. Yeah, I mean, I just like to highlight to young listeners now that now this sounds strange because we have all these huge centers that study outcomes and we have a great one at our own university, but but so many centers do. So many residents are coming in inspired by people that do that and are thinking about an academic career that involves uh, health services or comparative effectiveness, or there are probably a lot of different terms that I don't even know. But back then, uh, when we were training, it really was the academic surgeon was the triple threat, threat, which was a surgeon, a basic science lab, and teaching. Things have moved to be more, on the science side, more translational, which I think is great. I think people are doing a lot of preclinical models. And there was some of that back then, of course, but most of it was based on learning new operations more than like some of the things we're doing now. But I think this concept of outcomes or health services was like really just starting then. Yeah. And I never envisioned myself as that outcomes researcher. But I, you know, if you look at the people who are real leaders in surgical outcomes, they're all far younger than I am. Justin, Caprice, Carl, I mean, just they're all way younger than I am and extraordinary in their talents. And, yeah, and if really all you guys, you're going to be asked to be on this podcast. So good luck. <laughs> they're going to love it. Yeah. All right. So you ended up stumbling into this ethics fellowship. Is that right? Yeah. So um, the University of Chicago has a fantastic ethics program at the McLean Center, and they have basically a one-year fellowship. And actually, if you're interested, the American College of Surgeons sponsors people to do the ethics fellowship. They didn't really have a surgical ethics piece to it at the time I did it, but they do have a surgical ethics piece now, and that's run by Peter Angelos. And, you know, it was six months, or I'm sorry, six weeks of what they call a summer intensive, where you learned a lot of law, actually, and sort of basic ethics ethics principles, and then a year-long fellowship where you did ethics consults and went to a bunch of different meetings and really sort of developed your skills as a clinical ethicist. And it was really the first time since college that all of these intellectual lights got turned back on in my brain, like these things that I hadn't thought about in years just started opening up. And what struck me at the time was that a lot of the ethics issues that were discussed in case conference or even in the case law that we were reading were surgical ethics issues. And there were no surgeons in the room. And so they would say things and I would be like, what? No, 
no, that's <laughs> no, I, what are you talking about? Like it was very much sort of the courage of the non-combatant or very little empathy for the position of the surgeon. And so I was really inspired by this notion that I could find a space in clinical ethics to try to develop a little bit more of a surgeon's perspective on many of these things that have been you know, developed very nicely in other fields. And this was just to make sure we mentioned, this was Mark Siegler's uh, program. Yeah, I mean, Mark is just an amazing person and um, has run the McLean Center for years and years and years. And it was a life-changing experience in that it really changed the direction of my career. That's awesome. I hope Mark listens to this, but I'm just so glad you had that experience. I know to some degree, maybe I dragged you out to UFC and it was a little, even though it was great for you, it was a little bit different course than you expected, but it led to academically you really opening your eyes, I think, in a way that you might not have. And so I have to thank Phil Stefani and Mark Siegler. <laughs> okay, so let's fast forward a little because I want to get into some more current things. So we moved on. Um, after this fellowship, we had some chance to have an experience where you were an attending vascular surgeon when I was a resident. I think I might tell some of those stories in my introduction, so I'll save those for that. One comment I'll make, uh, probably not the best idea in a relationship to work for your spouse. That's always a, a funny challenge, but especially when they're just starting out in their new career. But we had a few funny moments, I think. One thing that was really fun was that when I was a chief resident on vascular, I would call the various attendings and say, hey, we have this complicated patient. I looked at them and then I'd come up with a perfect plan and there would always be a pause. And then they'd say, did you run this by Gretchen? <laughs> and I'd be like, yeah, I did. And they're like, okay, sounds good. So that was an advantage for me. Um, so that was good. All right. So we came to Wisconsin thinking we would just stay for two years for my transplant fellowship. And now we've been here for, I think, 16 years Over now. 16. Yeah. And tell me, um, let's talk about what you've developed on, uh, you're a vascular surgeon and we can talk about that, but let's really talk, talk about how your academic program has developed. Yeah. When we got here, I thought I would be um, a busy clinician and I would do lectures in the medical school about clinical ethics, informed consent, and, you know, advanced care planning, that kind of thing. I can't exactly remember where or when this happened, but I was giving a talk someplace and my dear friend, Rochelle Bernacki, who is a geriatrician at the Brigham, said at the end of my talk, she said, Gretchen, why is it that surgeons have such a hard time withdrawing life-sustaining treatments on their post-operative patients? Is it just about their mortality statistics? Or is it something else? I was like, wow, that's a really interesting question. And I think what I thought was so interesting about it is that people already felt like they had an answer and that answer didn't feel right to me. It just, I just don't see surgeons running around with these numbers on their backs thinking about their mortality statistics. And I was like, you know, I don't know the answer to that question. And so it really got me thinking about surgeons and end of life care and what it meant to do a big operation and then have to withdraw life-sustaining treatments postoperatively because I think many people both inside and outside of surgery have at least witnessed these conflicts with surgeons who are sort of fighting to the death to try and keep their patient alive when everybody around is like, this is not going to work and it's not good for this patient. And so I think it's easy to tag the surgeon as being sort of arrogant and egotistical and self-interested, but that actually didn't feel right to me. And so so I started looking at that question and um, got a 
a nice grant from the Greenwall Foundation, which really was looking at this idea that we would do some advanced care planning preoperatively, but that developed into a much larger notion and a lot more data about where surgeons were and what this space was like for them. And it was really describing this emotional space about feeling responsible, feeling guilty is not quite the right word, but very upset and sad that you had taken somebody off the street and brought them into the hospital to do their operation and now you have put them in a very Mm -hmm. bad place and that part of your responsibility as a surgeon is you know this agreement that you had with them pre-op which is i'm going to take care of you and i'm going to get you through this and by being able to characterize this and you know we characterized it and called it something called surgical buy-in this notion that surgery is not just about the operation but all this other stuff i'm going to need to get you through it we were able to both sort of say it's not just about these numbers but also to develop this space, I think, of empathy for surgeons about where they are and why this is hard for them. My science work in my lab is really, um, I wouldn't say it's gone in a different direction, but that was really the seed that got me into thinking about how do we talk to patients about surgery? What do we say? And honestly, just to bring up yet another podcast guest, um, Jeff Matthews had said to me at the you know, the Society of University Surgeons, you have to do that poster thing when you're a new member. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, God. So I did my poster and Jeff Matthews comes by and it was really some of the early data on buy-in. And he said, well, don't you want to know how this happens? Don't you want to know what the surgeons say? And I was like, oh, that's a really good idea. And so then we started putting you know, tape recorders in the pre-op clinic and listening to what surgeons were saying to patients before surgery. And then all of a sudden, it really sort of opened up for me that the more data you had, the more you had a better sense of what was going on and how what we think we're saying is really not what we're saying. And I would say all of the work I've done since then was A, getting the skills to try and be able to do the research and B, trying to sort of think through this conversation in a way that would help both the patient and surgeon be on the same page. I, we do a lot of interventional work in my lab, and I love this sort of idea of like, how can we do it better? But there's this great saying, and I it's attributed to Einstein in my brain, and I have no idea if it's his saying or not. But he said, if somebody told me I had an hour to save the world, I'd spend 55 minutes trying to figure out what was wrong with it. I really think that that primary data collection where you're working really hard to figure out like, well, what is going on here? That's what sucked me into research, trying to figure it out. And I love, you know, I mean, my lab has probably close to 600 conversations between mostly surgeons and patients, mostly older adults thinking about high-risk operations. I love listening to them. I love sort of thinking about what are we saying? What do we think we're saying? And what should we say in order to help people out a little bit more? Are we doing a good job? Are we not? And if not, is it fixable? (laughs) Because I think we all want to do a good job. I think surgeons are doing a good job given the skills that they taught and given the ideals that sort of came out in the 60s and 70s from the bioethicists, right? That informed consent is this notion that patients need to understand their disease and the treatment that you're proposing, and they need to know the risks, benefits, and the alternatives. And, you know, I say this a lot. I think the bioethicists came up with something really great, and they never did the empirical work to understand how that plays out clinically. And I think once you start listening to what's going on, you understand that there are a lot of hazards in that. And people say, oh, well, we need to do shared decision-making. And 
I'm not sure that shared decision-making makes up for those hazards either. You know, we spend a lot of time in my lab sort of coding what people say and having a really good sense of sort of the structure of that conversation. And I would say we probably do a pretty good job on that structure, but the structure's flawed. And without changing that structure, it's going to be hard to really change what we do. Kind of remind, I've been, re- you know, I love to read, as you know, and I love to read history and books from different eras. And it, I was sort of fascinated reading about a, a book from a, um, the 60s and 70s where the docs wouldn't even necessarily tell the patient what they had or what surgery they did. They might talk to, especially if it was like a woman, they'd talk to the spouse and not tell them. But the other thing was they were super paternalistic and they would just say, this is what we're going to do. I think sometimes we flip too far the other way and it does drive me crazy when we're, for instance, in our liver tumor conference and we have all these options. We could burn a tumor, we could resect it, we could transplant them. And sometimes you know, people will go to the patients and say, we can do the, these three things. What do you want to do? And that, that can't be right. I mean, we can't even figure it out. So what, it, how, how do you do that? Should you say to a patient, like, this is what I think we should do, or it really depends on developing a rapport. And I know this is simplistic, but. It's not simplistic. And I think this is exactly how most surgeons think about it. They sort of feel like this notion of providing choices feels flawed. And yet that's what people are asking them to do. And I think, again, there's this gap between the, what the bioethicists say about respecting autonomy and how we perform that clinically. And I don't think the bioethicists meant absolute autonomy. But I think that's a lot of what we do. We say, these are the choices and now you choose. And in fact, we have several audio recordings of surgeons, like when we're training them to do things and we say, okay, now you put the choices out. Now your turn is to make, now you need to make a recommendation. And the surgeons will be like, I can't do that. And I think when I think about autonomy, I think about something called relational autonomy, which is that all of us show up to our relationships with other professionals with certain expectations So that when I go to see a mechanic or when I go to see my financial planner, um, I have expectations that they are going to help me with their expertise in the same way that someone who comes to see a surgeon is going to help, you know, is going to expect the surgeon to use their expertise to guide them. And, you know, just to push it a little bit more, it's like, you know, the last thing in the world I want from our financial planner is a whole, you know, smorgasbord of you know, stocks and bonds and different portfolios and lots of information about them. And at the end for them to be like, okay, now you choose, you know, what I want the financial planner to say is, you know, Gretchen and Josh, you want to retire at 65. You need to get your kids through college and you're really risk averse with your money. And so I think the portfolio you should be in is this. And why we can't understand that and then do that in healthcare is a little bit beyond me. But I do think it comes from a good place, which is that when we are asking people to choose, we are trying to support their autonomy. We just don't understand how to do that well. And I would say the way to do it well is to understand enough about their tolerance for risk, enough about the goals that they're hoping for with surgery that at the end you could say, look, I really think we should do surgery and these are the reasons why. Or look, I really think we shouldn't do surgery and these are the reasons why. It's funny, we have some audio recordings where the patient will say to the surgeon, what would you do if this was your father? And the surgeon will say, I don't know, you're not my father. (laughs) And, you know, if somebody says that to you, I think what you should say is, it sounds like you're looking for a recommendation. And I would like to give you a recommendation. And let me tell you what I know about you. 
And this is what I think we should do based on what I know about you. Or if you don't feel like you understand the patient well enough or what's right for this person in front of you, you should say, I'd like to give you a recommendation, but I don't understand what's important to you and you know what you're willing to go through well enough to do so. So let's have a conversation about that. And then I will give you a recommendation. But we're in this really awkward space where we ask people all the time, like, you know, surgeons are like, do you want a mechanical valve or do you want a, you know, bioprosthetic? And the patients are like, what? Right. <laughs> Aren't you the surgeon? Right. Right. I mean, obviously different patients can be different. And then you'll have some that come to you with having done Google searches and getting very, very specific. And then you have others that really don't want to know much about it. I do like it when patients say to me, you know, what, what would you do for your mother or father? And I'll often say, this is what I do for my mother and father. But like, you know, and then I can use that as an opening to say, but let me understand, you know, what you really want out of it. You know, some patients can be harder to connect with than others. Let me ask a couple of questions that are related. So first, I want to back up a little bit from what you were saying earlier. Do you think in terms of surgeons being resistant to withdrawing on patients that some significant portion of it is a concern about their 30-day outcomes or their X outcomes, or, or is it not that? I think it would be naive to say that's not a part of it. I would also say it's oversimplifying it because at the very least, all of us have come through a system that rewarded us and criticized us based on certain metrics. And we are certainly measured that way. And whether it's public outcome reporting, which is a jumble of mess, or um, just talking to people at M&M about your bad outcome. We, you know, surgery really values survival in a way that surgery doesn't value other outcomes. And it would be very hard to get through surgical training and not understand that. And so I do think fields where there is a lot of counting, I think your field is probably the best example of that. There is a real push to keep people alive for a certain amount of time. Is that really how it always goes down? Probably not because they're not some people, it doesn't matter how hard you push, you're not going to get them to 30 days. And some people, you push them really hard. And at 30 days, you're like, okay, we'll stop pushing. But they don't actually die then because you got them to 30 days. And so some of this is a little hard to prove. I don't think that it's so much what is their outcome. It's the conflict between the surgeon and the patient's family or the surgeon and the team and how other people are thinking about what is in the best interest of this patient or what is consistent with this patient's autonomous wishes. And I think that one of the biggest factors is that surgeons really deeply believe that I talked about this ahead of time and this is what they said patients wanted. And that is a hard one to get over. And it's hard to get over it unless you actually tape record what they say. Mm. And so I have a pretty good sense that we didn't do what we think we did. But I do honestly think that this develops into this huge conflict that's somewhat associated with these numbers, but is by and large a misunderstanding and an emotional response to a bad outcome. So it's, it's, it's so it oversimplifies it to say it's just about the numbers, but there is no doubt that in fields where there is more number accounting, this pressure feels worse. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You brought up my own field of transplant where I think we we do some of the most aggressive data collection and we're judged on outcomes. They tend to be one year outcomes and even beyond that. And there's good and bad to it, right? I mean, I think uh, 
I think transplant, it's really important, right? The issue with transplant, and I think the reason that the one-year outcomes matter so much, even though there is this terrible side effect of trying to push someone to get to one year because of your numbers, which is obviously not something people should be doing. And I don't think people do it overtly very often. I know there are some news stories about it. I think there is a lot of tacit pressure, and then Mm -hmm. there's a bunch of bad stories. But I do think that there is tacit pressure on everybody to do it, and I think that that is problematic. It also, again, comes from a very inspired and important space, which is that you, unlike the rest of us, are also very responsible for the resource. And that means, you know, when I take care of a patient, that is my number one responsibility, that patient. But when you take care of a patient for a transplant, you are responsible to that patient and the next patient, right? You have a responsibility to the resource because if you don't do well by the resource, then you have actually harmed someone else. And that is so unique in transplant that even though I think this sort of following the numbers has some bad side effects, we need to be really cognizant of this intensely scarce resource and how to care for it. And I think that's one of the things I love watching about you and your colleagues being transplant surgeons is that you have a duty to the list in a way that the rest of us don't seem to have a duty to the other healthcare resources that we're using, which doesn't mean that we don't have a duty, but I think we ignore that duty often, but you cannot. This is obviously its own lecture or its own, I don't know, fellowship. Probably we could spend a year on this um, and looking at outcomes. I do want to get onto a a few other things. You're somewhat famous for best case, worst case. And um, I think it's worth at least describing that in some, at least at some level. So talk about best case, worst case, and how it applies to deciding whether to take a patient to the operating room. Yeah. I mean, do I need to explain it to you? Because I'm not really sure you know what it is. <laughs> I just, rep- I'm says, like uh, Michael Barbaro. I represent yeah. the the common man list, common man or woman listener. That's, uh, that's the role sure. I'm playing. Even said, mm-hmm. Best case, right. So we laugh Josh about this. Josh says, best case yeah. you live, worst case you die. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Which do you want? Yeah. Right. <laughs> You know, so um, so I want to acknowledge my dear um, friend and colleague, Toby Campbell. And, you know, after I'd written those papers about surgical buy-in, Toby came by my office and was very, he's the palliative care physician. And he came by my office and we were talking about that. And he said, you know, I do this thing with my lung cancer patients. He also is a medical oncologist. He's like, you know, I talk about the best case scenario and the worst case scenario and had a little diagram. And I had looked at him and I was like, I bet surgeons could do this. And we spent about a year developing a graphic aid and sort of some sort of understanding about how would you get surgeons to take the kind of information they have in their mind about what the best case scenario is and then translate that for patients. And a few years later, after we had sort of developed best case, worst case, I came upon some papers in the Harvard Business Review, also sent to me by another palliative care clinician, by this gentleman named Peter Pierre Wack, and he's an economist. And he said, you know, the managers at big companies like Shell Oil are always pissed off with the economists because the economists give them all this probabilistic data. There's a 60% chance of this and a 40% chance of that. And the economists realized that in order to help the decision makers, the managers make good decisions, they needed to explain where the uncertainty was and then describe what would happen if that event occurred because there were knowns and unknowns. And that the only way to allow somebody to imagine and prepare for what might occur in the setting of uncertainty would be to describe the unknowns and then the knowns by using plausible scenarios or stories 
about what might occur. And this is really what best case, worst case is. It's saying to a patient or a patient and their family, if we do surgery, let me tell you what it looks like if everything goes well. And that is completely different than saying, if we do surgery, you have a 50% chance of dying. Because while they understand maybe this is a serious problem, the opposite of 50% chance of dying is a 50% chance of living. Like you're just like you were before. And that's actually not how an operation with 50% mortality goes down, right? There is a real story that we might tell that starts with an operation that has all of this other stuff attached, including things like functional and cognitive recovery and even your overall lifespan, right? If you're somebody who's already chronically very ill and has a shortened lifespan, you know, doing an operation may spend make you spend most of the rest of your life in the hospital. And so by describing what it looks like if everything goes well and what it looks like with everything goes poorly, it allows people to or surgeons to put boundaries around the limits of what is possible and then to say, look, I've been doing this for a long time, and this is what I know about you. And based on what I know, in this range between best and worst is something that I would describe as most likely. And, you know, you're a really healthy guy, so it's probably really close to best case. Or, you know, you've got a lot of problems, and it's probably somewhat closer to the worst case scenario than we would like. And I think by using stories to describe not just the outcomes, but the events experienced along the way, we allow patients and families to anticipate and prepare. But importantly for us as surgeons is that once they hear things like, oh, and you'll need to be intubated in the ICU probably for a few days after surgery and you might need to be on machines, they can say, oh, that bothers me. Mm-hmm. Or, oh, I'm not okay with that. And if you describe the worst case scenario and all these you know, sort of bad events as they build up, they can start giving you some insight into their sort of the things that they're afraid of and the things that they're hoping for. And by using these narratives, we can start a dialogue that will then allow us to understand. And I think, you know, the problem with shared decision-making is people sort of want to start out with, with like, what are your goals or what's important to you? And I think that that, you know, some people do that really, really well, but the rest of us need some strategy that will allow us to hear from patients and families what's okay for them and what's not okay for them. And by using these narratives about what I would hope for if we did an operation, you can start to understand if that's okay for the patient. Yeah, I mean, it's really an interesting one, especially for big surgeries where you're really worried about the patient. Would you still use it for the patient that comes in and they're like, we're going to fight this no matter what? Because I I get that in my field. I'm sure you get that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think best case, worst case is for every setting. You know, one of, I think probably the most exciting project that I'm doing right now is um, funded by the Greenwell Foundation. And we're taking this library that we have of surgical conversations and trying to revisit this notion of what should a surgical consultation look like? What would a better strategy for informed consent be? And I really think sort of, you know, breaking it down and then building it back up into this space of how should this go based on what we know is not working well now, you know, that's really our our next opportunity. And I don't have a name for that. And I don't really have it all constructed yet. But given the kinds of things that I can see that are not going well in sort of the Mm. day to day conversations, I can tell you what we shouldn't be doing. And I can also reinforce the kinds of things that we should be doing. So I, you know, I like best case, worst case sort of, I think it's helpful in acute hospitalized patients. 
I think it is helpful when you're really on the fence with a patient and family about whether this is the right thing for them, whether it's, um, you know, it's an outpatient conversation about a liver transplant or, um, you know, an inpatient conversation of should we take your 85-year-old father with dementia now toxic medical into the operating room. I have a suggestion for your next project. Call it um, actually useful informed consent. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) So this is great. I mean, I could talk to you forever and we're married, so I guess I will. I guess let me ask this weird question. So if like your research is a home run and what do you want to be your legacy? Yeah, I want to change informed consent. That that would be it. And so that's my mission. I do think that we could we could do so much better. And the kind of stuff we do, you know, it's funny, I I'll go to conferences and talk about best case, worst case, and surgeons will stand up afterwards and be like, I don't have time for this. And then I listen to what they're doing. I'm like, dude, you do not have time for that. Mm -hmm. Right? Like there's a 20 minute conversation of let me describe, you know, the stage of your cancer and the grade (laughs) of your cancer. And let me tell you about the esophagus and it's three layers. And then there are these, you know, huge like discussions of how to do a whipple and what you're going to sew to what and all this stuff. And I think, like, why would you need to know how to do a Whipple to figure out whether you want a Whipple? And I don't want to blame the surgeons for this because I think we're doing the best we can with what we were given. But I think, you know, we could elevate that to another space that would make a huge difference. And I, I have real ideas about what I want to do. They're not totally finished. But if I could sort of execute that idea and have everybody do the like the Gretchen way, which of course is not what I would call it. Um, <laughs> that, that would be um, a career, a career well spent. Yeah, this is, this is really great. I, I do agree. I can laugh about it, but I think I've done it too. And sometimes you're in there and suddenly you feel like you're taking the boards, telling them the steps of an operation. And you have to think like, that's not what patients want. We <laughs> all do it. I mean, the number of times I have drawn an aneurysm upside down with you know, yes. the renal arteries and the kidneys and the iliacs. And let me show you how this stent is going to go. And I mean, I can't tell you the number of times I've done that. And I agree. I've said also, like, I don't have time to get into some of this stuff, but I realize you're right. It's we take our time. We use our time in the wrong way, although we do need more time. But well, I mean, the more time thing I want to have some empathy about. And I also want to be a little critical about And I think this issue when people stand up at the end of my talks and say, I don't have time for this. And I you know, I have said this and I probably, it's a little too snarky, but what I say is, you know, I've been to a lot of meetings where people have said, you know, extended lymphadenectomy will save lives or doing a endograph with multiple endovascular stents coming out of it all over the place, you know, fever and all that craziness. Nobody gets up at the end of some presentation of this novel technique and says, I don't have time for this. Like as surgeons, I think what we say is if this is going to make patient care better, even if it takes me five more freaking hours in the operating room, I'm going to do it, right? That's what we do. And so it's kind of shocking to me that people are like, God, I love this best case, worst case thing, but I don't have time for it. And I'm empathetic about that because when I'm on call, I feel like I have no time, right? You're just like, book the case, just book the case. Let's just keep going. And simultaneously, I think that it's not really about time. It's about it's about what we care about, and it's probably about what we get pay- or how we get paid. And so I think we should be cautious when we say we don't have time and step back a little bit and think about, well, what does that mean? What's that about? That's really well said. I would love to keep talking about all these things, but we'll have to have you on again. Let me run through a few kind of fun ones. 
um, as we're getting towards the end. For all those students out there who are going to interview for surgery, I know my I know my wife sometimes asks this question: Who are your heroes? Yeah, that's a great question. So that was a question somebody asked me when I was interviewing for medical school, and I told them it was Martin Luther King, and I would probably still say that he is still one of my biggest heroes. I love the idea of nonviolence and um, how many people you could motivate to do the right thing and really change things. And I still, you know, listen to his speeches and get so inspired. I would say my academic hero is a woman named Joanne Lynn. Sue is an amazing health services researcher and geriatrician. And um, she said, you know, in the 60s, when you came to the hospital and you um, were going to have a baby, you get completely anesthetized and you be in this cold room and your husband would be asked to sit outside and you know they wouldn't even give you the baby afterwards you'd just be so drugged up and Mm. she said by the 70s we did it a totally different way she said the reason that change was not because we asked women which way they wanted it we just decided that this was better and that's how it changed and I think this insight into what decision making is and what kinds of decisions or what kinds of work we should do with patients is really important. And I think her insight is something I think about almost every day when I think about how to get people better care. And I know I live in this space about how do we make better decisions, but I actually think it's really the systems of care that we provide and that we work in that are much more important to think about than just how do we make these decisions. So I I love Joanne. I think she's a really extraordinary person. Mm -hmm. Amazing answers, although you didn't include me. But um, I was thinking Martin Luther King, of course, his speeches give you goosebumps. But if anyone out there uh, wants to listen to his and some others, John Meacham had this podcast. It was said, and he does an episode on Martin Luther King that's beautiful. There are a number of other beautiful ones there, too. I'm sure John Meacham's listening to this. (laughs) Okay, a couple other quick ones. I have a really dumb one. If you could be any surgical instrument, which one would you be? Yeah, I mean, I know you asked this question. I am God. such an it's idiot. Really, I know. Um, I would be a cat. I know what you would be. Yeah, it's just <laughs> okay. kind of ridiculous. I mean, I love the debakies. I think the debakies yeah. are the best. Good, solid instrument. Oh, and they're great, right? Like the good debakies just feel right in your hand. Yeah, it's a good solid. I'd be a Castro Viejo loaded backhand, 7 proline. Okay, you know, Bruce Gewertz, we had him on, and when he was 16, they let him do an appendectomy. I think the, the person doing the operation thought he was. A med student. Did your grandfather ever let you do any surgery? No. <laughs> you didn't scrub it. No, no. Okay. I'm not having a lot of regrets about that. Okay, good. So Bruce still is the youngest person to ever operate on someone. What are you what's your favorite thing to stream since we're living in this pandemic? Oh, I mean, gosh, that what was that thing that we were watching with Kate, the Umbrellas? Um, Umbrella Academy. Umbrella Academy. I really? just, you know, man, I miss them. We finished the whole damn series and now I'm like feeling this huge empty hole. That one's great. And I'm sure everyone out there has watched the one about the chess that. Yeah, uh, the Queen's Gambit. The Queen's Gambit. And I love that Sherlock season. Oh, yeah. Too. The yeah. Benedict Cumberbatch uh, Sherlock. Yeah, but uh, we should just put it out there that we are like, we have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Come on. Who are actually, no, we hardly stream anything. Barely we're like we still have the blinking 12 on our on our yeah. vcr that opens going up so i don't want to talk about that this is really the last question i was going to ask you like a lot of other things but it was too much time but what advice do you give to young people whether they're going into surgery or medicine or some other field you know now that you have gone through what you've gone through uh, and how you look at life advice that can help people 
Oh, that's a really hard one. You know, everybody's, yeah, I mean, everybody's different. And I think, you know, my grandfather said advice is free, so it's probably worth everything you paid for (laughs) it. And I think that that's a good way to think about it. I, you know, I love the notion that you should sort of follow your heart or follow your gut. I'm not totally sure how those things are different. I think at the end of the day, and I'm just going to, you know, sort of acknowledge all the sort of class issues in the privilege I have of saying something like this. But I think at the end of the day, people who are really smart, it is better to do a job that you feel is valuable to other people and that is ultimately valuable to you than to do a job that is just a job that makes a lot of money. And I do think that we have a lot of dear friends who use their brain and are very brilliant. But I worry that the sort of drudgery of doing a job that really has very little impact or maybe even detracts from the world is ultimately deflating in a way that is probably not good for your soul. And I, you know, I don't want to sound too critical of them. I think they are wonderful people and find other outlets for it. I think their job is hard and I think they work hard. And I think to have a hard job where you work hard and you're not totally sure that it's a worthwhile job is probably not a good recipe for feeling okay. This was an incredible interview and um, I really could go on. I was going to ask you so many other things, but I think we covered a lot of great stuff. You know, we'll have you back. I just want to say one thing to my listeners out there. Happy birthday. Um, it's, it's Gretchen's birthday and she's turning 34. Um, happy birthday to... No, okay, I'm not going to do this. All right. It's not going to be my birthday when this thing Yeah, that's true. It's going to be like freaking June. Oh, that's a good point. All right. Well, happy birthday. No need to to wish me happy birthday if you're listening to this. That's a good point. And uh, maybe we'll cut that later. Yeah, they'll probably edit this out, I'm guessing. Okay, great. This was really fun. I hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next time. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and Stitcher. Invite your friends to listen in if you have any. And if you're feeling generous, rate us on your favorite podcast app, but only if you're going to give us a good rating. It really does make a huge difference. Thank you so much. The Surgery Set is a production from the Department of Surgery at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This episode was produced by J.P. Swenson and me, Josh Meserich. Quentin Tarantino did not direct it. It was recorded by Josh Mesrich and edited by J.P. Swenson. Visit us at surgery.wisc.edu, where you can find links to Grand Rounds, free CME credits, and more. You can also check out the UW School of Medicine and Public Health video library for a wide range of medical education resources at videos.med.wisc.edu. Give our Facebook page a like and follow us on Twitter at Surgery. Please feel free to let us know how we're doing. Rate and review us on your podcast app, and don't hesitate to let us know any topics you'd like us to cover. Until next time, from all of us here at the set, thank you for listening. You are likely a better person than you were just 30 minutes ago. You are very welcome. Welcome.